Last year, you heard me talk about the nature of Christ. That is an extremely volatile subject in today's Seventh-day Adventist world. If I were to ignore that subject, many more doors would be open to me in terms of speaking opportunities and writing opportunities. To speak on that subject with any definitiveness places one in the category of divisiveness and unnecessary controversy. So, this afternoon, I'm going to share with you not what I believe about the nature of Christ, but why I spent an hour and a half of your time last year on this subject. Why I think it is a subject that we cannot pass off too lightly, why I think it's important. So we're going to address the why question this year, not the what question. In 1989, the Biblical Research Institute of the General Conference wrote this, The world church has never viewed these subjects as essential to salvation or to the mission of the remnant church. There can be no strong unity within the world church of God's remnant people so long as segments who hold these views vocalize and agitate them both in North America and in overseas divisions. These topics need to be laid aside and not urged upon our people as necessary issues. That was the advice of the highest biblical study commission of the Seventh-day Adventist Church as to why we should not deal with these subjects. And so this afternoon, just like Brother Fitch had to do 150 years ago, I'm going to share with you my reasons for respectfully declining the advice of my senior brethren on this subject as saying that these subjects are not of value for the world church and are not necessary and should not be agitated. I am going to share with you why I think they must be. Back in the beginning, the challenge of Satan was very strong against God. He said, God, your laws are unfair. The way you're treating the angels is unfair. And then when you created human beings, you treated them unfairly. Your government is not valid. The way you handle people is rigid and arbitrary, and your law is unsuitable for created beings. That was the original challenge. That was the original defiance. Why did Jesus Christ come into the world? Would you take your Bible for just a moment and look up John 8, verse 26. John 8, verse 26. I have many things to say and to judge of you, but he that sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things which I have heard of him. May I suggest that the primary reason Jesus came down to this earth is to tell the truth about the character of God. He that sent me is true. I believe that was the mission of Jesus Christ. If he would have died on the cross of Calvary without substantiating that, would it have done any good for us? He that sent me is true. 
If he would have died as a martyr, if he would have died because of his standing up for right and for truth, and he would not have shown that God in heaven was true, he would have failed in his mission. It was not his death alone. It was his death substantiating the truth of God and his law and his character. That's what made his mission successful. He that sent me is true was the mission that Christ had to fulfill if he was to succeed in what he had sent, what he was sent to do. A person wrote a letter into the Adventist Review that was very perceptive. He came to the world, I'm sorry, this was quoting Signs of the Times, January 20, 1890. Quoting from Ellen White, Signs of the Times, January 20, 1890. He came to the world that the erroneous ideas Satan had been the means of creating in the minds of men in regard to the character of God might be removed. Notice that? He came to the world that Satan's lies might be revealed. That's why he came. Jesus came to teach men of the Father. When the object of his mission was attained, what was the object of his mission? The revelation of God to the world. The Son of God announced that his work was accomplished and that the character of the Father was made manifest to men. Let's be very clear on that. Jesus' mission was to clarify the character of the Father, to tell the truth about God's ways of saving mankind, God's ways of rulership. Notice that carefully. When the object of his mission was attained, the revelation of God to the world, then he announced that his work was accomplished. The only reason that it had to go through to the cross was to show fully that the character of God and the character of Satan stood in stark contrast. Only at the cross was it clearly seen that Satan was a murderer from the beginning and that God's ways were completely opposite from Satan's ways. That's why the cross was important. The object of his mission was to reveal the character of his Father. That is a very, very crucial statement on this point. Now, there are two charges Satan has made against the law of God. He has said, he said this in heaven, angels don't need the law of God. It isn't suitable for them. They can do just fine without any law. So God's law is not right. It isn't fair. It's too restrictive. That's charge A, as I call it. Charge B, fallen human beings after Adam's sin cannot obey the law of God. Now, everyone pretty well agrees on charge A. Angels, unfallen man, can't obey the law of God. There's not much controversy on that point. But it's charge B that's the problem area. What did God really say? We need to review a little bit of evidence on this point because not many people understand charge B. Listen carefully to Signs of the Times, volume 3, page 264. No, that's yes, that's the one. Satan declared that it was impossible for the sons and daughters of Adam to keep the law of God. Who's the son and daughter of Adam? Cain, Abel, and the rest of us. All right? Are those people with fallen or unfallen natures? See how easy that one is? Satan declared that it was impossible for the sons and daughters of Adam to keep the law of God and thus charged upon God a lack of wisdom and love. If they, if you, cannot keep the law of God, then there was fault with the lawgiver. That's charge B. 
If human beings, after the fall of Adam, cannot keep the law of God, then the lawgiver is at fault. All right, let's try another one. Review and Herald. It's volume 5 of the bound volumes, page 120. He came to this world to be tempted in all points as we are, to prove to the universe that in this world of sin, human beings can live lives that God will approve. Why did Christ come to this world? To prove to the universe that in this world of sin, that's people with fallen natures, human beings can live lives that God will approve. Satan declared that human beings could not live without sin. So Satan says, fallen human beings, after the fall of Adam, cannot live without sinning. God says they can. The law is good. Satan says the law is bad. Satan says human beings in this world of sin cannot keep the law of God. My Life Today, page 323. In relationship to all the fallen sons and daughters of Adam, revealing to the heavenly universe to Satan, and to all the fallen sons and daughters of Adam, that through his grace, humanity can keep the law of God. Who is he revealing it to? Satan, all the heavenly universe, and all the fallen sons and daughters of Adam, that through his grace, what humanity? Fallen humanity can keep the law of God. So there are three statements, and there are quite a few more. Let's try this one. After the fall of man, Satan declared that human beings were proved to be incapable of keeping the law of God. After the fall of man, incapable of keeping the law of God. Selected Messages, Volume 1, 252 and 253. Christ's humanity would demonstrate for eternal ages the question which settled the controversy. How was the controversy settled? That's the issue. How was the great controversy settled? In taking upon himself man's nature in its fallen condition, Christ did not in the least participate in its sin. How did he settle it? He took man's nature in its fallen condition, but didn't participate in its sin. That's Selected Messages, Volume 1, 255 and 256. So we have a few statements here that are quite clear. After the fall... The sons and daughters of Adam cannot keep the law of God. After they have sinned, Satan says, they cannot obey God. Obedience is impossible. And of course, that's what the whole Christian world has been saying. Christians can't keep the law. The law is infinite. It's holy. It can't be kept by finite sinning human beings. It can only be kept when we have a a perfect nature, since it is infinitely perfect. And so at this point, we have charge B, leveled against the character of God. Fallen humanity cannot keep the law of God. How is God going to answer that charge? How is God going to prove that Satan is lying on this? Only, only by standing at the head of humanity as the second Adam can Jesus Christ prove that Satan was a liar. But now, you see, there's a difference. The first Adam had a perfect nature which had no bias at all toward evil. The second Adam, what must he come like to prove Satan a liar? If he came like Adam in the Garden of Eden, he would have disproved Satan's argument on charge A. Angels 
unfallen human beings can obey the law of God. He would have proved it. Charge A would have been done. But what about charge B? Fallen human beings cannot obey the law of God. If Jesus would have come in Adam's perfect nature, who then would have proved Satan wrong on charge B? How about you? How about me? Would any of us have been the proof that Satan was a liar? Or would we all have substantiated Satan's claim? Remember the claim is, fallen human beings cannot obey the law of God. How many of us have disobeyed the law of God? All of us have proved Satan right in the great controversy, haven't we? Even Enoch. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All have had to been forgiven by the blood of Christ. That's the only way of entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Not one human being has gone from birth to death in this earth without sinning. Therefore, if Jesus truly came in the nature of Adam before the fall, then who to this day has proved that Satan is lying when he said, fallen men and women cannot obey the law of God? My friends, that charge would stand substantiated to this day. We would be no closer to the end of the great controversy than we were before the death of Christ. There would be no way to prove that Satan was a liar in the great controversy. And we would not be in any way in expecting that Jesus could come any time in the near future. Because Satan would not have been proved wrong. You see, there are two charges in this, in this, in this attack against God's law. The unfallen charge and the fallen charge. Those in Christianity who say Christ took Adam's nature say that Christ disproved the first charge. Those who say that Christ took, Adam, Christ, that Christ took our nature disprove the second charge, which includes the first charge as well. Because certainly if fallen man can obey the law of God, unfallen man can easily obey the law of God and can obey the law of God throughout all eternity. So you see, we're dealing with two different charges here. If Christ had sidestepped our fallen human nature, we would be no closer toward a resolution of the great controversy than before the death of Christ. Then we would not have a sinless substitute to stand in our place because only could Christ stand as our substitute if he successfully proved Satan was a liar. Remember the text we read, both from the Bible and the spirit of prophecy? He came to prove that God was true. He came to prove that God's way worked. That had to be done before his death had any meaning. And if he had sidestepped our nature, or if he had only taken part of our nature, which is the common teaching today, he took our physical weaknesses, but not our tendencies and our inclinations, then he would have shown that anyone with only physical limitations could have obeyed the law of God. But who's like that today? There is no one of us who has only physical limitations, but not sinful tendencies to temper, etc., going along with those physical limitations. So any understanding of the nature of Christ that stops short of Christ taking our full-orbed humanity in its fallenness leaves Satan in charge of the great controversy to this day, with no one proving him wrong. And thus, we do not have an answer to Satan's charges, and the great controversy is not close to being done. In the most simple way that I can say it, 
That's why I believe that Jesus had to take our fallen nature, is because I want a substitute. We often hear about Jesus being a substitute or example. He has to be both. Those who believe that Jesus took man's fallen nature are often accused of teaching that we emphasized his example role and ignore his substitutionary role. I say it's precisely the opposite, that we must understand he can only be our substitute if he destroys Satan's arguments. And our substitute must destroy charge B as well as charge A. Here is a letter written by someone from Australia to the Adventist Review. Along with two-thirds of the original number of angels, despite Satan's fiercest efforts to tempt and deceive them, despite their having only a partial knowledge of the nature and results of sin, not a single being in the many other inhabited worlds has yielded to sin and lost his right to eternal life. Isn't that amazing? Despite all of Satan's charges, not one being in all of God's created worlds has yielded to Satan. If the Son of the Most High God had taken on human flesh just to prove that sinless beings with sinless natures can perfectly keep God's law, we would have had an infinite humiliation to prove the already and obviously proven. Now think about that for a minute. If all of the universe had not yielded to Satan, did Christ need to prove that over again? that unfallen beings didn't have to yield, that they could obey the law of God. They had obeyed it for thousands of years. And we would have had an infinite humiliation to prove what had already been proved millions of times over. There could have been no greater, more costly, more tragic exercise in futility. Satan's claim is that God is a tyrant, so that fallen angels and fallen human beings are irredeemable. What Jesus had to prove was that sin is the real tyrant, that his law is holy, just, and good, that sinners can repent, sinners can be forgiven, sinners can be justified, sinners can live again in harmony with the principles of his law and occupy a position of dignity and self-respect in their relationships with God and their fellows. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection proved all that for time and eternity. This is a letter to the Adventist Review that someone wrote in with no more authority than any one of you sitting out here this afternoon. No doctoral name, no letters behind their name, just reasoning through the evidence at stake in these issues. So what I'm saying at this point is that we have to decide what Jesus really came to prove, what Jesus' mission was really all about, what his bottom line was. And I think his bottom line was proving every argument of Satan to be wrong. Everything Satan could throw against the character of God and the law of God had to be disproved by Jesus Christ. Charge A and charge B. Only then could he be our sinless substitute. Right now you are hearing that only could Jesus be our sinless substitute if he did not have our nature. Because you see, it is said that having a sinless nature makes one a sinner automatically and in need of a Savior. And if Jesus would have taken our fallen nature, he would have been a sinner in need of a Savior. Therefore, it is said that Jesus could only be our sinless substitute if he exempted himself from our fallen nature. Now, that makes perfect sense if you believe in original sin. 
If you believe we are going to hell from the moment we're, we're born, it makes perfect sense. But you see, that doctrine, as best I can judge, is made up after the Bible was finished by theologians who had preconceptions about the fact that you can't overcome all sin, particularly a man named St. Augustine. He could not overcome certain propensities in his life and therefore developed a theology saying some sin is inevitable in life. We were born that way. But if we reject that a priori assumption that we're born going to hell, if we believe that sin is always a matter of decision and of choice of the will, then we can get back to Jesus' bottom line. What did he come to do? He came to prove Satan a liar. He came to prove that God's law could be kept by unfallen and fallen human beings. And the only way he could do that was by taking our nature and showing that fallen humanity could be so transformed by the Holy Spirit that God's law was good and perfect and holy and just and lovable and right. And that everyone who submitted to God's power and authority, even with the worst of equipment, could say, Oh, how I love thy law. It is my delight day and night. That's why I believe that Jesus is my sinless substitute, because he came all the way down and showed that Satan was a liar from the beginning. Now, there's another aspect. In addition to the fact that we need a sinless substitute, Revelation chapter 14, verse 5. Would you turn there with me? Describing this last generation that will live on this earth, the ones who will give the three angels messages. And in their mouth was found no guile, that means deception, hypocrisy of any kind, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Without fault before the throne of God. The last generation, close of probation, seal of God, placed upon this 144,000, living a life when the doors of forgiveness are closed, when now there is no mediator in the courts above to forgive a slip of the tongue, a wrong attitude, a sin against God. How will that be possible? Someone has well said 27 years ago, those who teach that Christ took a superior human nature draw the logical conclusion that it is impossible for the rest of mankind to perfectly obey the law of Jehovah in this life. Why not? Jesus took a superior nature. He wasn't battered by these impulses, these feelings, these attitudes, these hormones that we have. He had a different nature. So... The rest of us who have to live with this garbage day in and day out, coming through our minds from who knows where, from our fallen natures, we can't obey. Jesus could obey because he was exempt from that. He had a superior nature. The logical conclusion that it's impossible for the rest of mankind to perfectly obey the law of Jehovah in this life. So again, if Jesus Christ proved charge A wrong, he proved that when we get unfallen natures, we can perfectly obey the law of God. Charge A, unfallen beings cannot obey the law of God. So if he took that nature, 
unfallen nature, he proved successfully that when Jesus Christ comes down to this earth and turns this mortal into immortality and this corruption into incorruption, at that moment we will be able to obey the law of God because we will have the kind of nature that Jesus had and that Adam had and therefore we can obey the law of God from that moment forward. He proved that. But if Jesus Christ proved charge B wrong, Fallen human beings can perfectly obey the law of God, if he proved that. Then he proved that before the second coming of Christ, there can be a close of probation, there can be a sealed 144,000, and when Jesus Christ steps out of his mediatorial role in the heavenly sanctuary of forgiving sins... He keeps on pouring down his overcoming grace, but no more forgiving grace is applied. Then God's people can truly obey perfectly the law of God. So again, if Jesus took Adam's nature, he proved that we can keep the law of God after glorification. If he took my nature, he proved that I can keep the law of God before glorification. It's that simple. So it's a proof not only of the lies of Satan, it's evidence for the last generation and the final atonement. Can God in the final atonement so pour out his overcoming grace on a generation that they will be able to do what no generation has ever done up to this time in the history of the world, live without sinning in the sight of God in thought, deed, word, or action? A totally impossible claim, Satan says. Satan says fallen human beings can't do it. And God says, I have proved it, they can do it, and I'm going to prove it over again. That's the real issue. Has God proved it in the past? We are dealing with the issue here, you see, of a paper promise. What's written in this book is a paper promise. This book is a marvelous book, but it's words on paper. It says the 144,000 will be without fault. It says there will be a close of probation. It says the seal of God will be placed on the foreheads. It says Jesus will step out of his mediatorial ministry. It's just paper. Words on paper. You can believe the words on paper if you like, and I'm glad that there are people who can believe words on paper, but my weak faith needs a little more than weak words on paper. I need flesh and blood. I need to see that it really can be because someone has been there before me. And if I truly have any hope of being part of this 144,000 in this impossible dream of living without sin at the end of time, I am going to desperately need to see there was a man and I need to focus my attention on him constantly and say that what the paper, the words on paper said he lived in his life, he proved that it could be done. I think that's our hope of being this last generation. And so, for two reasons. Number one, the first reason, to be our sinless substitute, Jesus had to take our nature, or he could not have been the one who died for mankind. Number two, to prove that God's final atonement process of preparing a whole generation to live in obedience to God's law without slipping even one time, I believe there needed to be one to show the way. The first Adam, the second Adam. The first Adam showed the impossibility, the second Adam showed the possibility. 
Let's not confuse first and Adam. They're not about natures. That's not what it's about at all. It's about two beings who did two different things. The first Adam took us from perfection to destruction. The second Adam takes us from destruction to perfection. The second Adam undoes everything the first Adam does. They are not parallels, they are opposites. And the first Adam starts out with a perfect nature and degrades it to a, a, a lousy, perverted nature. The second Adam starts out with that perverted nature and, and brings it up to holiness and beauty and, and purity. These are two different experiences of two representatives of the human race. And Jesus comes to do it to prove Satan a liar and to show that God's final work in the sanctuary, in the most holy place of perfecting his people, will be a reality. It has been proven. It is locked in. No one need doubt it at all. It has been done in history and will be repeated in the future. Those are my two reasons for believing that I must respectfully decline the advice of my senior brethren, that this subject should not be agitated, that it is not anything which is necessary for our understanding of the plan of salvation. I believe that without this understanding, there will be no final generation that will vindicate God's name. That's why I take the risk of talking about something that is quite unpopular. Now, the rest of our little time together, I want to share just some little tidbits that you might find interesting and maybe helpful in your own thinking. Here was a book that was written a few years ago called Made Like His Brethren. The offense taken at the biblical account of the Christ who was made like unto his brethren continues to be a stumbling block. Present solemn reality suggests that the ancient rejection of the chief cornerstone finds a parallel today in the church, as many deny that the word was made flesh. Are you fully aware of that? The word flesh in the Bible. The Bible meaning of the word flesh means fallen humanity in the mind as well as the body. Everything connected with fallenness of man, that includes fallen nature. It says the word was made flesh. The question for the church to face today is, when will Laodicea understand? Can she perceive how she has been shorn and stands naked? Can we with Samson learn from our own history? By consorting with the Philistines, we too have had the seven locks of truth shaved off our heads and so lost our mission. Compromise after compromise has been made. Now we are being told we can shake ourselves and find strength apart from the truth that has sustained and made us a people throughout our history. We are told that such things as understanding the nature of Christ and righteousness by faith in an end-time setting are not essential to salvation nor for the mission of the church. We are falsely assured that the world church has never viewed these subjects as central and they should be laid aside for these are matters that Satan would use to take advantage of God's people. Have we lost our power as Samson did? By allowing that beautiful truth that God has placed around this movement to be taken away from us and assuming somehow we'll be able to rise, shake ourselves and come to our full strength and understanding. In 1994, a book was written called The Nature of Christ, Help for a Church Divided Over Perfection, written by one of the editors of the Adventist Review. 
He said, My thesis throughout is that the theology of these three men, A.T. Jones, E.J. Wagoner, and M.L. Andreasen, has provided the spawning ground for the position on righteousness by faith and perfection held by certain Adventists today. Without a doubt, the roots of the present agitation go all the way back to Jones and Wagoner. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? A very clear statement that historic righteousness by faith, like I tried to share with you last week in our time together, comes from the 1888 message and has been coming down the line ever since. That's what he said. The spawning ground for this position held by certain Adventists today. The roots go all the way back to Jones and Wagoner. Because, you see, this was exactly the position they took. And yes, I would say, without a shadow of a doubt, in terms of clear statements of our belief, there were the clear statements beginning in 1888. We had had them before, but here it was crystal clear as to what we believed on these subjects. And by the way, when we talk about opposition to the 1888 message, it didn't end in 1890 or 1900. There is as much opposition to the 1888 message today as there was 100 years ago for exactly the opposite reasons. Back then, they were afraid that the 1888 message was going to tend everyone toward liberalism and deny the landmarks of the Adventist church. We were going, going to go into grace only and have everybody do as they please. That was the fear of our brethren. We were going to lose our foundations. Today, the fear of the brethren is that we are going to go back into total perfectionism once again and we are going to become fanatics and extremists by going back to total obedience, which can't really happen till Jesus comes. Again, complete opposition today for the opposite reasons to what happened a hundred years ago. Here is what one commentator said about this book, The Nature of Christ, in 1994. He has apparently arbitrarily selected two persons, Jones and Wagoner, from among a large group of Adventist thought leaders, including Ellen White, and assigned to them the responsibility for creating doctrinal attitudes that were actually shared by them all. You see, they just articulated them. They didn't create these ideas, they just articulated them. Was M. L. Andreasen a person who accepted strange and new doctrines from Jones and Wagoner and urged them upon the church, or was he only one among a host of witnesses to generally accept these truths? As you know, M. L. Andreasen has come in for a lot of attack in recent years. Did he innovate or did he articulate as well what Adventists had always believed? So that was an interesting kind of thing. But now let me take you one step farther. In, let's see if I have the date here. Yes, 1994 again, same time this book was written. A book review was printed by Good News Unlimited. Anybody recognize that name? Good News Unlimited, GNU, out of Auburn, California. Desmond Ford after he left Pacific Union College. Desmond Ford's book review of this book in 1994. At last, 
After a century and a half, the Seventh-day Adventist Church has published a book devoted entirely to the vital subject of the sinless nature of Christ, our Lord and Savior. The denomination's publishing houses have hesitated to proclaim that truth in any publication of scholarly responses that many have longed to make. I recommend Roy Adams' book wholeheartedly. It reminds me of Perfect in Christ by Helmut Ott, which was published in 1987 by the same publishers. Ott's book, which I also heartily recommend, is of the same genre. However, as mentioned at the beginning of this review, Roy Adams' The Nature of Christ, as far as I know, is a first in Adventist publications. It is the first official SDA book to affirm the sinless nature of Christ our Lord and Savior. Isn't that interesting? We have been told that that's what we've always believed. And here we have a clear admission that Adams is breaking new ground with this book. The first book officially published, not in the mainstream, but a brand new idea coming to Adventism, according to Desmond Ford. And, of course, he recommended the book wholeheartedly as the best expression of the nature of Christ and righteousness by faith in the Adventist church. So what we are finding here is that instead of this being a mainstream belief all the way down through the centuries, those who have been studying these subjects have not found that. They have found a different mainstream belief, and now they are very glad for a new belief that is changing the mainstream belief that we have had in Adventism. Now, this I found very interesting. I did not know this myself. While I knew Desmond Ford at Pacific Union College, he did not agree with Dr. Adams on everything. Dr. Adams, again, this is Ford's review, Dr. Adams takes the popular Adventist view found in Ellen White's writings that the destiny of the human race hung in the balance when Christ came to earth. There was no absolute certainty that Christ would overcome and conquer and successfully complete the atonement. In other words, Christ could have sinned. He's saying that he objects to that teaching of Roy Adams. The salvation of the human race did not hang in the balance when Christ came. Success was absolutely certain. What did we just hear? Christ could not have sinned. Christ could not have sinned. And he objects mightily to the book's teaching that Christ could have sinned and that the destiny of the human race hung in the balance when Christ lived on this earth. If Christ would have sinned once, we would all have been lost. There would have been no hope for the human race. That has been the Adventist teaching all down through our time. And he says, and he says Roy Adams is just continuing that old outmoded teaching. I didn't know that about my friend Desmond Ford. I didn't know that he taught that Christ could not have sinned. But it's only logical, because those before him, back in the 1950s, all coming across to us from the evangelical world, believed the same thing. In fact, when our leaders met with evangelical leaders in the mid-50s and we explained our position on the nature of Christ and we told them that we believe Christ had a sinless nature like Adam... They then went back to their drawing boards and they wrote articles in their magazines saying, Seventh-day Adventists agree with us that Christ could not have sinned. We never agreed to that. We never even hinted at that. What we said was Christ had a sinless nature. They interpreted that to mean Christ could not have sinned because, you see, 
The Bible says that God cannot be tempted with evil. And if Jesus has a perfect nature and he is God, then he cannot be tempted. He cannot sin. You see, temptation means the risk of sinning. And so Christ cannot sin. That is the belief of many in the evangelical world today. You believe Christ did not sin. They believe Christ could not sin. Is there a little difference between those teachings? In one sense, the human race is in the balance, and every moment of Christ's life is a struggle between good and evil. Every moment he has to say, I die daily, not my will but thine be done. In the other view, it is a pre-scripted play in which the lines are all written in heaven. Jesus memorizes the lines. He comes down to his earth. He repeats the lines as an actor on a stage. He goes back to heaven amidst the applause of of the universe, and the play is done. There is a difference between an act and real life. Actors in a, on a, in a play do not take any risks. They know their lines. They complete their job. In real life, you and I don't know what tomorrow holds. You and I don't know if we're going to be saved or lost, for sure. We might walk away from Christ tomorrow. That's our right. None of us know the future, and Christ didn't know the future. Christ lived in the same uncertainty that you and I must live in every day of our lives. So you see, you have two vastly different concepts of the incarnation here. Of the Christ who could not sin versus the Christ who did not sin because of the power of Jesus Christ. Someone has written about Reformed Protestantism. This is the Calvinistic view of Protestantism that has come down through Presbyterianism and other, other areas, the Southern Baptist tradition, etc. The possibility of Jesus sinning and falling is an atrocious idea. For then God himself must have been able to sin, which, is, which it is blasphemy to think. That is their position. The idea of Jesus sinning and falling is an atrocious idea. So what we've got is very simple. Either he could not sin or he could sin. One or the other of those is true. Many in the Christian world believe the former. You and I believe the latter. But now we're saying, yes, he could sin, but he did not come into the world like we come into the world, like the sons and daughters come into the world, that he was exempted from our situation. So you see, we're taking a middle-of-the-road position there from the ones who say he couldn't sin. We are saying he could sin, but he was exempted from our likelihood of sinning. It wasn't likely for Adam to sin. It was likely for me to sin from the moment of my birth. And so Christ was exempted from the likelihood of sinning is what we're saying. You begin to see how we're playing into the hands of Satan on these issues of saying that, well, he really didn't prove that you and you and me, that we can stop sinning. He proved something about Adam. He proved something about the angels. He proved something about us after the second coming. But he didn't prove anything about us now. Those are a few of the interesting ideas that have come on the scene in relation to this issue of the nature of Christ. And again, why I submit to you that this is not an off-the-wall issue, that this is not a closet issue, that it is not something just for academic scholars to debate in papers, but this is an issue which has to do with my salvation and the vindication of God and the ending of the great controversy. 
That's why I keep talking about this subject, even when I'm advised not to. Came across something very interesting. Anybody have uh, heard Hank Hanegraaff? Radio broadcaster of some fame following the line of Walter Martin? Listen carefully to what he said. Has nothing to do with the nature of Christ. In none of these passages, Bible passages, is Sunday worship commanded. Christians are no more required to make Sunday their day of rest than they are to make Saturday their day of rest. However, of course, they are perfectly free to do so. Either way. In fact, to criticize Sunday observance and then to separate from the rest of the church over something like this is both legalistic and divisive. Now, who is he talking about? Every one of you in this church today, you criticizing Sunday observance, separating from the rest of the church over something like this is both legalistic and divisive. Remember, let's not focus on the letter of the law and forget the substance of it. On Sunday and the Sabbath, that's the CRI perspective. I'm Hank Hanegraaff. What has he just told us? You Adventists are nitpicking at details. You are bringing up issues which are dividing the Christian church. You are unnecessarily divisive and controversial, and you are bringing legalism into the issues. You Adventists, you need to get a little more loving, a little more compassionate, a little more tolerant about these things. Does that have any relationship to what I've been talking about this afternoon? What is controversial? What is divisive? What is not necessary for the happiness and the security of the Seventh-day Adventist Church? We're being told exactly the same thing about the issues of, and it's always tied together, the nature of Christ and Christian perfection. Those two issues. All of those, always those two issues are tied together. And that is what divides unnecessarily, makes people legalistic, makes, brings controversy into the church. The only way we can have true harmony if those are held under a bushel. Just like our friend Hank Hanegraaff says we should do about Sabbath observance. It all depends where you draw the line. Do you see? If we draw the line at any point in saying truth is unnecessary, we've drawn the line too far. When truth becomes unnecessarily divisive, we have destroyed truth. Truth is always divisive. It's been that way since the days of Jesus Christ. It has always divided. Jesus said he came to bring a sword, but we don't want the sword anymore. We want everyone to be happy. Everyone to be comfortable. And I wish that could be true. But in a world where Satan is attacking God at every step, it, it's not going to happen on this earth. It will never happen that we'll all be comfortable together. Because somewhere, sometime, truth is going to come in like a sword and divide husband and wife, father and son, brother and sister. And it will do so because of truth. Not because we're becoming divisive and argumentative and uncontrollable. So we have to make up our minds. Where do we draw the line? Where do we say this is irrelevant and this is important? This is compromisable and this cannot be compromised. Every one of us are going to have to make that decision. And all I've done this afternoon is shared with you why on one subject 
I deal with a controversial subject without apology. With regret, I deeply regret that it's controversial, but without apology. Because, my friends, this is a mainstream teaching of the Seventh-day Adventist Church from its very beginning, and only recently has it become a problem. I'm happy to be there. I like mainstream. I like being in the center of the flow of a movement ordained by God. And I will take my position very comfortably with Jones, Wagoner, Ellen White, J.N. Andrews, Stephen Haskell, and the pioneers of the Seventh-day Adventist Church without apology. We're going to close right now. We're going to have a closing prayer, and then the time will be yours. First of all, let me say this. I thank you very much for seeing your lovely faces once again this year. I had a great time last year, and I had a great time this year. So I thank you for your invitation, for coming to spend an afternoon and last evening together. And uh, may God richly bless you as you continue on in this area to let the light of truth just shine a little brighter. Don't ever become discouraged. What I have seen in the past few years here is a miracle of God's making. And we don't want it to die away. We don't want to become ashamed of it. We want to hold it up, shine it brighter, and let it penetrate to every corner that we can. So let's kneel together. I think that would be appropriate. Father, as we are near to the close of yet another Sabbath day, we are reminded that many more Sabbath days have passed on this earth than was your plan, that we who are alive today are alive only because of your mercy in allowing this movement to go a little farther than you originally wanted it to go so that your purposes can be fully revealed in it. So right now, Lord, may this generation, the generation that we are all a part of, may this be the one to say, finally, yes, Lord, we will be what you are, have been asking your church to be for 150 years. We will not pass the buck once again to our children and our grandchildren to do what we were uncomfortable with. We will allow it to happen during our lifetime. We will believe your impossible promises. We will accept that what Jesus Christ did on this earth 2,000 years ago can be repeated in the lives of anyone who wants to believe it. Lord, we pray for that today. I pray for that. We need to believe the impossible. We need to know that what, God, what you have promised, you will fulfill. And so, Lord, we put it in your hands. As Jesus said in his last words on the cross, Father, we commit our spirits into your hands today. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.